quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The highest seven-day average of new COVID cases in the U.S. since January. The lead starts right now. Work needs to be done. President Biden acknowledging what most Americans already know about testing inadequacies as the Omicron variant tears across the United States. A 14-year-old girl in a California store dressing room killed by a police officer's stray bullet. We're about to get a closer look at what went so wrong. And then water, water everywhere. At least 300,000 people dealing with floods that have left entire communities underwater and killed at least 17. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today in our health lead. For the first time since taking office, President Joe Biden joined his COVID team's regular call with the nation's governors, telling state leaders, tell us what you need. This all comes as Omicron cases surge nationwide, topping Delta's peak. And the White House continues to struggle to address the testing supply shortage during the holidays. From Miami to New York, Kentucky to Colorado, Americans waiting sometimes for hours to find out if they test positive for COVID. And right now, the U.S., is averaging close to 200,000 new COVID cases every day. That's the highest number of cases on a daily rate since January 19th, 2021, before vaccinations, before boosters were widely available. Perhaps some good news in all of this, hospitalizations as of right now are not rising as much as cases, but as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, Dr. Fauci says that could be next, particularly for the unvaccinated. You're highly protected. Omicron is a cause for concern, but not for panic. That was President Biden's message to the nation's governors on the front lines of the health care battle. This is not like March of 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. We're prepared and we know what it takes to save lives, protect people and keep schools and businesses open. With COVID cases soaring, more than 2,000 flights were grounded worldwide and nearly 3,000 delayed in the U.S. just today. That's on top of thousands over the weekend. And flight crews keep calling in sick, even as holiday travelers keep coming. We actually changed our flight to a nonstop flight just to in hopes of hopefully not having any cancellations. At sea, several cruise ships have been infected, in some cases being turned away from ports, in all dampening the festivities. And they weren't really enforcing masks until a lot of people started getting COVID, and then they were kind of, you know, enforcing masks more. I don't think I'll ever go on a cruise again, honestly, at this point. As the Omicron variant rages, testing lines are stretching out and tests running short in some places. New York City is enforcing a COVID vaccine mandate for private businesses. No one thinks that this is the holiday season we were hoping for, but contrasted to last year, it's so much better. Also better, hospitalizations are not rising as quickly as feared, and health officials are reconsidering the 10-day recommended isolation for people who test positive. The idea about cutting down the period of quarantine for people who've been exposed and perhaps the period of isolation for people 
who have been infected is something that is under, I would say, serious consideration. Still, for now, the virus keeps hammering hospitals, patients and staffs alike. We have, as of this morning, 115 staff members out ill with COVID uh, who have tested positive. Even the holiday fun and games are getting shaky, with five college football bowl games canceled or scrambling to find new teams as COVID rips through locker rooms. Brand new rules allow for the championship itself to be delayed or decided by forfeit if necessary, although nobody wants that. Everybody wants to play, so the the players are looking out for themselves. They really are. Simply put, the pandemic once again has everything in flux, despite most Americans doing the right thing and getting vaccinated. And we may be living this way for a while. Health officials are predicting the Omicron winter surge could last six to eight weeks. Jake. All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Let's go right to one of those testing sites with CNN's Layla Santiago, where Miami residents have been waiting for up to two hours for a test. Layla, is this the busiest mm. you've seen this site? Well, actually, Jake, we just talked to someone who got a test. They told us they had to wait three hours at this site. This is one of the busiest sites in South Florida run by Nomi Health. And the health group tells me that they plan to open four to five more testing sites in the coming days to try to meet that demand. They say they have enough when it comes to supplies for testing, when it comes to workers, uh, but they're still struggling a little bit to meet uh, the challenge when it comes to the volume because of such high high demand in testing. I spoke to the general manager of Nomi Health Florida. Here's what he had to say. We knew with the holidays right around the corner that there would be a surge and there would be an increase. Uh, Again, I don't think anyone predicted that between uh, in comparing uh, the delta, the peak of delta versus where we are today at our sites, we've seen a a 50 percent increase in testing volumes between those two. And, and we don't quite know if we're at peak yet with Omicron. And Jake, I also checked in with the Florida Hospital Association. They say that they're seeing hospitalizations relatively low, increasing slowly, but they still have many beds to treat COVID patients and non-COVID patients in Florida. Jake? Layla, are they worried at all about running out of tests? So I asked about supply, and they say at this point, while they don't know exactly when they will hit the peak uh, for this Omicron wave, Ron Goncalves, who you just heard from there, the the head of Nomi Health in Florida, says that they are not concerned about supply when it comes to testing uh, materials. They are working around the clock when it comes to their labs, but the, the supply is not a concern at this point. All right, Leila Santiago in Miami, thanks so much. Let's bring in Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the dean of Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha, there are now more cases of Omicron than there were of Delta at the height of the Delta surge, but hospitalizations are less than 70% of what they were during the last peak around September. What does this tell you? Yeah, Jake, first of all, thanks for having me back. I think two things. Uh, First of all, by the way, we are still early in the Omicron surge. I think we are going to... Uh, blow past our 250,000 number that we had last December, which was our peak, uh, probably double that, uh, if not more. So we don't have a lot more infections to go. The The issue is what you raise, which is our hospitalization is going to rise at the same rate. I think we have very good evidence now that it's not going to rise at the same rate, that a lot of these infections are happening in vaccinated people, and they are suffering a relatively mild disease. And that separation between infections and hospitalizations is the 
essentially that's the transition we've been waiting for as we go from really an acute phase of this pandemic towards more of an endemic phase. Do you agree with the experts say that it it could be another six to eight weeks uh, for this Omicron surge? Does that track with the data you've seen? Yeah, it, it depends a little bit. The Really, the only country we've got good data from so far is South Africa, which saw a peak in about four weeks and started coming down. Uh, obviously, our country's immune profile is very different. We have a lot more people vaccinated. Uh, so we don't know how this is going to play out here. My hope is it's more like four to six weeks, which has the peak then kind of in mid-January with infection numbers declining. But it is really a best guess at this moment. The infectious disease director at Children's National Hospital here in D.C. said that close to half of the COVID tests being performed are coming back positive, close to half. That includes children with symptoms and without symptoms. What does that tell you? Yeah, it tells me this virus is really very widespread, particularly in Washington, D.C., but it's not going to be in D.C. alone. We've seen it in New York. We've seen it in San Francisco, other big cities. It's going to be all across the country. Uh, the fact that it's asymptomatic in some kids is great. It means that they're having mild infections, uh, but there are still plenty of kids getting sick from this virus. One of the reasons we've got to vaccinate our kids as well. The CDC now says that healthcare workers who are asymptomatic can return to work after seven days with a negative test. That's down from 10 days. New York State says fully vaccinated asymptomatic essential workers can return to work five days after testing positive. Dr. Fauci was asked whether the isolation period should be shortened for everyone. Here's what he said. Certainly we're considering it going beyond just healthcare workers because, you know, there are a lot of people in society that are essential for the smooth running of the infrastructure of our society. So the idea about cutting down the period of quarantine for people who've been exposed and perhaps the period of isolation for people who have been infected is something that is under, I would say, serious consideration. What do you say to those who think it's taking too long for health experts to update their guidance and and are forced to abide by old guidance that might not be as relevant, especially with Omicron? Yeah, I I totally agree with that, Jake. I I do think it needs to be shortened. I expect the CDC uh, to come out uh, hopefully soon with some new guidance on this. Uh, But that's what I'm expecting at this moment, because the evidence is pretty clear. You don't need to be isolated for 10 days if you're uh, if you've been infected, particularly if you've been vaccinated and boosted, a much shorter isolation is very safe. You're not going to be contagious. And and there are ways of managing a shorter isolation, including mask wearing, which New York is asking for, or negative antigen tests, which is what I've called for as a way to end an isolation earlier than 10 days. Testing, of course, continues to be a real challenge in this country, kind of inexplicably, given how much experts and people like you and me have been talking about the need to have testing as, uh, all over the country as much as possible. Fauci says he expects things to get better in January. But what happens until then? Yeah, this is a I mean, this is not where we should be two years into this pandemic. Um, you know, look, the, the I think the administration uh, undervalued testing for much of 2021. They relied heavily on vaccinations, which, of course, are terrific and really, really important. But we did not build up the testing infrastructure we needed to manage this winter surge. Uh, and that means the next few weeks are going to be really tough. Uh, and frustrating, and and rightly so, I think, for Americans. The key issue is, can we finally once and for all get it fixed once we get into January, February? I'm hopeful that we will, but it is this is not where we should be. So obviously, uh, the data all suggests that if you are vaccinated and boosted, uh, you have a much better chance of not only surviving COVID, 
but not having that intense a case of COVID. What about uh, how transmissible you might be? Are people who are vaccinated and boosted less infectious if they catch it than somebody who is not vaccinated? It's a very good question. We know for other variants like Delta and Alpha or the original strain that absolutely, if you were vaccinated, uh, you're far less likely to transmit because you're just much less contagious. Uh, I suspect what we're going to see with Omicron is if you're boosted, you're going to be less likely to be contagious. You're less likely to be infected. But we don't know for sure, Jake. And we're going to have to sort this out for Omicron as we have for every other variant. Tell us, if you don't mind sharing, how you live your life, the choices you choose to make. Do you still go out to eat in restaurants? Do you go to a movie theater? Do you have small gatherings with friends? You're somebody that people look up to. He, he wants to avoid uh, getting COVID. What are some of the things that you do? Sure. Um, so I have gatherings with friends in, in our home. Everybody who comes in is vaccinated and boosted. Uh, I don't worry so much about the little kids. If they're over five, they're all vaccinated as well. Uh, I've gone to a concert. I went to the Boston the Holiday Pops, which was wonderful. Everybody was masked and we needed to show a vaccine. Uh, restaurants that don't have a vaccine mandate, I've been largely avoiding. I just don't want to sit next to an unvaccinated person for two hours unmasked. Uh, that's a personal choice that I've made. I just I'd rather not. I don't think it'd be incredibly risky. But at the same time, if I can avoid those situations, uh, I like to do it. We just wrapped one holiday where there are a lot of families across the U.S. gathered. New Year's Eve is just a few days away from now. Um, do you expect to see uh, even more uh, of a surge in infections? Because, I mean, a New Year's crowd is different from a, a Christmas crowd. A Christmas crowd tends to be smaller people you know, family. A New Year's crowd can be a much bigger uh, a party. Do you think that that will cause rates to go up? I do. I mean, that's just been our experience. We saw it certainly after last New Year's Eve. We've seen it after other gatherings, after other holidays. We tend to see a big spike. So I am worried about that. If we had ubiquitous testing, I would say make sure everybody at the party is uh, tested. Keep the party a little bit smaller than usual. It's going to be harder without those tests available. So I am a little bit worried about what's going to happen over the New Year's Eve uh, weekend. All right, Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you so much. Good to see you again. It has been a harbinger for COVID to come. We're checking with a doctor who runs a New York ER. Uh, why what they're seeing could be next for what the rest of the country will go through. Plus, new details in that tragic death of a 14-year-old girl. Police body camera about to be released, filling in the picture of the police officer's fatal stray bullet, we're told. Stay with us. In our health lead, as the United States braces for an increase in hospitalizations because of the highly contagious Omicron variant, New York is giving us an early warning sign of how bad it could get in the rest of the country. The Northwell Health Hospital System in New York City and Long Island has seen a 73% spike in COVID hospitalizations, 73% in just one week. Let's bring in the emergency department co-chair at Northwell's Long Island Jewish Medical Center in New Hyde Park, Dr. Fred Davis. Uh, Dr. Davis, thanks for joining us. What are you seeing in your emergency department right now? Well, thank you for having me. I think one of the interesting things we're starting to see during this, uh, this surge, it's been very different than the first surge. During the first surge, we saw a majority of the patients were COVID. Uh, this surge, we're seeing a lot of sicker patients that had uh, delayed care because of the different surges that went on. And now we're also starting to see a number of patients presenting uh, with very low acuity or very minimal symptoms that are also coming in to the emergency department to get tested. Oh, interesting. Who is of the people who are being rushed into the hospital with serious COVID, which it doesn't sound like is is 
a tremendous percentage, but of the people being rushed into the system with serious COVID, can you describe them in, in any trends? Uh, are they unvaccinated? Are they older? Do they have underlying conditions? I think the majority of the patients that we're seeing that are coming down with more of the serious symptoms, those that are having difficulty breathing, requiring oxygen supplementation, the majority of them remain unvaccinated. We are still seeing some breakthrough, um, but those tend to not be as sick as those that are unvaccinated. So what is the biggest strain in your hospital right now? I think there's a, a number of things that we look at. So both the, the volume of which is coming in, we're both, both seeing the patients that are critically requiring emergency care, but we're also starting to see a significant increase, especially after the holiday, the recent holidays, of those that are coming in uh, with minimal symptoms that are presenting to the emergency department uh, in order to get tested. And how are you and your fellow doctors and nurses and, and health support staff, how are you all dealing with this most recent wave that's starting um, f- for any number of reasons? Because of the burnout, you, you, you must, uh, many of you must be experiencing because of two years of this uh, and also just psychologically treating so many people who had the option to get vaccinated but have not. I, I think there's always the, the fear in the back of our mind of what went, what we all went through during that uh, first phase and how horrific it was and, and having to deal with a lot of really sick patients that uh, became sick very quickly. Uh, I think what's helped us through that is we've kind of developed that family. You'd kind of do that in, in, in any hospital setting, but particularly in the emergency department. We bond together to really tackle those difficult situations together as a team. And I think we've learned to lean on each other, especially during this time. And while we, we fear that this is something that's just starting, we also know that we can get through it because we got through something just as bad, if not worse. What are some signs for the people out there um, who get uh, COVID and have symptoms? What's a sign for them that it's time to go to the emergency room? Are uh, oximeters, those devices that measure blood oxygen levels, uh, you can get those, you can pick them up at a, at a CVS or a Walgreens. Is that, a, is that the best indicator? I think that's a great point. I think one of the things we want to do is we don't want to overutilize resources that are out there so that those that need them uh, have access to them. And that is one of the ways to really check to see how sick someone is. Because many cases from an emergency standpoint, what we're looking at is, uh, are you requiring extra oxygen? Do you need oxygen outside of what you're able to breathe in? So a pulse ox, uh, which is easily accessible now, is one of the best ways to look at that. We also look for how hard it is to breathe. When people say they're having shorter breath and they're breathing very quickly, that also suggests your body's working hard through this to possibly need some extra resources to help with that care. So if I remember correctly, the very first COVID vaccination administered in the United States was at your hospital. So give us a 30,000 foot view of that hopeful moment uh, to where we are now. Yeah, I, I think that was a, as a moment in time that you, we saw a break, you know, dealing with uh, the volume of which we were seeing of really sick patients that continued to come in uh, without anything that we could do to really prevent a lot of that. I think having and seeing that first vaccination being given gave us hope um, to even get us to this point where we are today, where we have uh, vaccinations and booster shots and, and shots for children. I think it was, it was an elacious moment. Uh, let's turn to, there's an opinion article um, in the Times written by a journalist living in the Netherlands warning about policy failures there 
with coronavirus surges such as this one. And she writes, quote, hospitals gave dire warnings of code black, meaning they're running out of beds. Some patients were transferred to Germany. And on top of all this, Omicron, currently up to 15 percent of infections is expected to cause another spike. But haven't we learned enough in the last two years to avoid stop, start lockdown as a gut reaction pandemic response, uh, unquote. So policymakers here like to say they're, they're quote, following the science. Um, do you think the U.S. should go into a full lockdown or, or, or what, what's your opinion? I, I think we, we learned from our from our past experiences, and I think that there's times when that was needed. However, as we're starting to see now and as we move forward and try to predict this ever-changing virus, I think we've seen that most of what we're learning from either South Africa or even what we're seeing currently uh, in our own hospitals is that this variant of Omicron seems to be less severe, that those aren't requiring as much of the hospitalizations as we saw during the alpha um, variant. And I think that's really where we're concerned. We're not straining the resources of the hospitals at this point uh, to really necessitate those things. All right, Dr. Fred Davis, thank you so much. And thank you for what you and your fellow healthcare workers do. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Is a breakup what Democrats need to ultimately come back together? A new idea looking to find the votes to deliver President Biden's big economic agenda. That's next. In our politics lead, some Democratic optimism today, saying that they might be able to pass, build back better after all. One Democratic senator says the party's considering breaking that massive social safety net bill into smaller pieces to try to get it across the finish line. CNN's Jessica Dean's live on Capitol Hill. Jessica, is there any momentum behind this idea of breaking up the bill? And wouldn't that require 10 Senate Republicans to join them? That is exactly right, Jake, and that's where this plan gets really complicated and it's hard to have a lot of optimism for that particular path forward because to date there has been no uh, outreach of support, very, very, very little on any of these issues. And as we head into 2022, which is now just five days away, remember we're going into an election year where Republicans are not going to want to help out Democrats, not give them a win. Uh, So to parcel this out into smaller individual items and try to pass it through with 10 Republican votes is extremely difficult. So then what is the other option? Well, we heard, as you mentioned, from Senator Ben Cardin earlier today on our air, and he talked about, well, potentially they could slim down this bill and get it to the point where Joe Manchin would be on board with it. The fact remains that the vast majority of Senate Democrats, and that's 49 out of 50, want to see Build Back Better passed. But the question is, what will Joe Manchin accept? And is there something that would uh, be acceptable to him that is slimmed down that they can get over the finish line with just those Democratic votes? And that's what we just don't know yet, Jake. All right, Jessica Dean on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Here to discuss Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado. Congressman, good to see you. I, I know you had a recent bout of COVID and I'm glad uh, you're feeling better. So what do you think of this idea of breaking up Build Back Better into smaller pieces to try to get Senator Manchin or maybe even 10 Republicans on board to, to, to get them passed that way? Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Um, you know, I, first of all, I think we should recognize that the, the entire bill in its entirety remains extremely popular with the American people. People love it. Uh, when you explain what it does, over 70 percent of Americans uh, support it. Uh, so I think we have to continue to stay focused on trying to pass uh, that bill or a substantially similar bill. You know, I haven't been around uh, Congress for that long, but I've been around long enough to know uh, things can come back to life. Things can become reanimated. Uh, so I think we have to see what happens after the new year with discussions with Joe Manchin. Uh, if we can't get the, the bill in its entirety passed, then yeah, we have to look at options for how we can get 
uh, separate pieces of that pass. And that is challenging. There's no doubt about it. So if you pare it down a bit or at least enough to get Senator Manchin on board, uh, is that even possible? Is there a version of this uh, that Manchin would support? I guess he doesn't support extending the child tax credits uh, the way that some progressives want. Is there a, a legislation that progressives can support uh, that Manchin would support? Well, I think what we have to do is make the case to Senator Manchin that West Virginia and West Virginians will benefit from this, from the extension of uh, Medicare benefits and dental benefits to child care benefits to uh, transition support for coal miners uh, to uh, re- you know housing support. All the things that are in it are things that you know uh, his constituents, my constituents, people across the country will benefit. So we have to focus, I think, less on uh, the, the the dollar amount because when we when I hear this talked about, they say, "Oh, this is this a spending bill." Well, this isn't a spending bill. This is a, a bill for working families. This is a health care bill. It's a jobs bill. Uh, it is a build back better bill. Uh, that's what it needs to do. So we need to really focus the discussion around what it does and what it is we need to have it do for the American people instead of looking at the, the dollar amounts. So the, the House Progressive Caucus is calling on President Biden to uh, push forward some some parts of this bill through executive action. Uh, do you think that's the right way forward? Well, I think we should look at that. I mean, certainly there are elements of this that we can get done under executive action. And if the Republicans in the House and the Senate are going to lock up and not do anything, not even do the things that their constituents overwhelmingly want them to do just because it's election year politics, then, yeah, we need to look at uh, what uh, the president can do uh, through executive action to get things done, because we do have the support of the American people. It always comes back to that. We have the support of the American people. This is what President Biden campaigned on. This is what we all campaigned on. And we have to make sure we're delivering because people expect that. Now, Republicans, people on the other side of the aisle, they're trying to make both arguments. They're trying to say, you know, well, you can't pass this bill because it'll be unpopular if you do. It's too expensive. Uh, and at the same time, they're trying to say, if you don't pass this bill, you're going to be penalized at the ballot box. Well, which one is it? I know which one it is. It's that people want this bill. They know that it's paid for. They know that it's actually going to uh, reduce inflationary stresses. They know that it's what the country needs to take us into the 21st century. I want to ask you uh, about the latest out of Afghanistan, where obviously you you deployed as an army ranger. The Taliban told CNN uh, that they've dissolved the country's independent election committee and its state ministries for peace and parliamentary affairs, saying that there was no longer a need for them. Uh, What was your reaction to that when you heard that news? Well, the Taliban continues to move in the wrong direction, which is not a surprise to me or or you, Jake, or anyone else who's been paying attention to the Taliban for many decades now. Uh, but what we have to do is stay focused on the people of Afghanistan. You know, we we fought and died, split, uh, spilled American blood, uh, spent American treasure, uh, not for the Taliban uh, to counter terrorism, which we still have to do, uh, but also to help the the Afghan people uh, achieve peace and and some prosperity. We cannot give up on the Afghan people who are looking at a disastrous famine right now. They want to have democracy, and I think they would be willing to fight for it in the future, but we have to get them through this winter. Uh, so that's why I led a letter along with several of my colleagues, Tom Malinowski and uh, Peter Meyer, a bipartisan effort that was signed by several dozen members of Congress that really outlines a way that we can provide aid directly to the, America, directly to the Afghan people without providing support for the Taliban. There's a way to get this done, and we continue to push the administration to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a real humanitarian crisis unfolding there. Is the Biden administration doing enough? 
Uh, we continue to push them to do more. We think that there is a way to put financial structures in place uh, to, to allow some money to flow uh, because there's a liquidity crisis. This is really an economic crisis that's driving the famine. So we need to increase liquidity. We have to make sure that we uh, prop up the economy. Uh, there is money that's willing to flow. Uh, it just can't because of the sanctions regime. Regime. So we have to continue to ease some of those sanctions in a way that uh, does not help the Taliban, but does help the American people. I'm sorry, the Afghan people. Uh, and uh, there is a way to do that uh, that we've outlined in our letter. So there is more to be done. Today, President Biden signed the NDAA, the defense funding bill, uh, which includes a multi-year independent Afghan war commission to, to look at the war in Afghanistan after the U.S. military withdrawal. What are the biggest questions you want answered by that commission? Well, Jake, I, I want to uh, have answered, I think the penultimate question here is, how did we let this happen? 20 years of war, thousands of American lives, tens of thousands wounded, uh, tons of American families that have had their life altered. Uh, and we've had general after general, uh, administration after administration, Republican administration, Democrat administration, uh, multiple Congresses that always said, we, we could do this. We could just, if we had more troops, if we had more soldiers, if we pushed more, we could do it. We weren't going to be able to do it. And we should have known that a long time ago, not in the way we were trying to do it. So why don't we take a step back as a nation and say, how can we stop this cycle of these decades-long wars? How can we do this very different? There's got to be a very different model for ensuring our national security, for promoting democracy overseas, but not doing it using the military is our primary tool. I believe there is a new model that can be found, and I would like to have a very robust conversation with this commission and with the American people about what does a new national security and foreign policy look like for the decades to come. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow, thank you so much. Good to see you. Happy New Year to you, sir. Thanks, Jake. You as well. An innocent 14-year-old girl killed while in a store dressing room. New body cam video could shed light on the police officer who fired that fatal shot. Stay with us. In our national lead today, authorities have now identified the 14-year-old girl killed while in a dressing room with her mother in Los Angeles. Valentina Orejana Peralta was fatally struck by a round which is believed to have been fired by an LAPD officer. Police say the incident happened after they responded to multiple calls about a possible shooting in progress. Los Angeles police say they plan to release body cam video of the incident today. CNN's Josh Campbell joins us now live from Los Angeles. And Josh, what is the department saying about the shooting? Well, tragic and devastating, Jake, is how the city's police chief is describing that incident. And to remind our viewers, this happened last Thursday. Authorities received reports of 911 calls of an attack in progress at this department store. As officers were on their way to arriving, that call was elevated to possible shots fired. As officers arrived, they encountered a female who was bleeding. Witnesses say a man was beating her with a bicycle chain. Authorities made contact with that suspect, and something caused one of the officers to open fire on that suspect. He was shot and killed. However, when authorities did a sweep of the building looking for other potential victims, they found something truly heartbreaking. Take a listen. The call was upgraded to possible shots fired. Officers encountered the suspect, and during that encounter, an officer-involved shooting occurred. We found a hole in the wall, um, and behind a tr the drywall, a solid wall that you can't see behind, we went behind it. It turned out to be the dressing room. Um, of there. And what we did is we were able to locate a 14-year-old female who was found deceased in that dressing room. Preliminarily, we believe that round was an officer's round.
truly devastating there. This 14-year-old girl shot and killed by a stray round fired by one of those officers. I want to show you a memorial that's been set up at that department store. Members of the community bringing in cards and flowers and balloons. Again, remembering that 14-year-old girl. As you mentioned, we are awaiting any moment now for the LAPD to release uh, a series of videos as well as 911 audio and CCTV footage from inside that store that day, Jake. We are hoping that that will provide us uh, some answers to some of these key questions about what the officer saw when that officer opened fire, uh, killing that suspect and obviously resulting in the tragic death of this 14-year-old girl, Jake. And Josh, I understand the California Attorney General has also announced an investigation into this tragic incident. That's right. The state's attorney general has launched a team of state investigators to come and do an independent review of this incident. This actually follows a law signed last year by California Governor Gavin Newsom, which requires the state AG's office to investigate any officer involved shooting in which an unarmed person dies. Now, we understand that after that investigation is complete, those results will be handed over to the state special prosecutor's office. They will determine if any charges are warranted. Jake. All right. Josh Campbell in Los Angeles for us. Thanks so much. Streets and houses underwater are nearly four cities where these massive floods are washing away lives. We'll have the dramatic images coming up next. Plus, we're following some breaking news. The CDC just announced big changes to the isolation period for some people who test positive for COVID. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series now, massive flooding in Brazil as concerns grow that more could be on the way. Authorities say nearly 40 cities in the northeastern part of the country have been affected, leaving at least 18 people dead and tens of thousands homeless. The devastating torrential rains causing two dams to burst over the weekend, threatening the region with additional flooding and landslides. CNN's Matt Rivers is following the story for us. And Matt, what are authorities saying about the danger of more flooding? Well, they're saying it's a distinct possibility right now because it is still raining, Jake, in many parts of Bahia State. It's that state in northeastern Brazil that is most affected where almost all of those 40 cities that you just mentioned uh, are. And the interesting thing about uh, all of this rain is that it's really been going back weeks now. You're talking about rainfall that has been torrential basically since November. And so it built up and built up and built up which eventually caused the, this culmination of these two dams to burst over the weekend. And that just inundated many of these communities with a flood of water that they simply have never seen before. One of the mayors of these towns actually said that in his 50 years living in this one city, he's never seen anything like this. And the video shows you just how inundated some of these parts are with water. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in the state of Bahia being affected. At least 35,000 people have had to leave their homes as a result of this. At least 18 people dead going back to November, 280 injured. But of course, that's not the full picture because authorities can't reach a lot of these places that have been so inundated so quickly with so much water, Jake. So authorities still trying to get a broader picture of what's happening here. Uh, but what's happened so far is just horrific. And Matt, what do experts and authorities there have to say about whether or not in, um, climate change is impacting this at all in terms of the extreme flooding? You know, I had a conversation with our CNN meteorological team who said there's no doubt that these kind of extreme events uh, can be caused by climate change. And if you talk to officials in Brazil, you know, the mayor of one of the hardest hit towns directly attributes what's happening right now to climate change. He said, unfortunately, water is often a gift from God. But he said in this case, 
our actions causing climate change has made this happen. He said this has never happened before and climate change is happening now. So clearly these things are correlated in his opinion. And this rain is going to continue, Jake. We know in some parts of the state of Bahia, there could be 100 millimeters or roughly four inches of rain that will fall over the next 24 to 48 hours, which means that as bad as this has been so far, it might get worse uh, as the next days continue. All right, Matt Rivers, thank you so much. In our national lead, we note the passing of a legendary U.S. warrior and counterterrorism operator. Richard Marcinka was the first commander of Navy SEAL Team 6, the famously secret unit jumping into the spotlight by killing Osama bin Laden in 2011. It's a unit that has a fascinating history. Marcinka was a Vietnam War combat veteran. He helped form SEAL Team 6 in 1980 after the U.S. military's failed attempt to rescue U.S. hostages in Iran. At the time, the Navy had only two SEAL teams. Marcinko named it SEAL Team 6 to make the USSR and other nations worry that the U.S. had more special operations team than they knew about it. And Marcinko led SEAL Team 6 through 1983, and he retired ultimately from the Navy in 1989. His son tells the New York Times uh, that Marcinko died Saturday of what the family believes was a heart attack. He was 81 years old. May his memory be a blessing. We're tracking breaking news. The CDC just announcing they're shortening the isolation period for some people if they meet certain conditions after they've contracted COVID. What you need to know, that's next. And if you're trying to fly home from your holiday trip, you better pack your patience. COVID causing havoc with the airlines. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news on our health lead. Moments ago, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced that it is shortening the isolation period for Americans who test positive for coronavirus, reducing it from 10 days to five, as long as one is asymptomatic at that point. The CDC says the changes are driven by science, which shows that the majority of COVID transmission happens in the first few days of illness. This announcement comes Just hours after President Biden finally conceded publicly what's been obvious since 2020, the federal government, first under Trump, now under him, has not done nearly enough to scale up testing to provide the safest way possible for Americans to live our lives. Right now, in some parts of the country, Americans are waiting hours to find out if they're positive. And as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, nearly 200,000 Americans are testing positive each and every day. We're certainly going to continue to see a surge for a while. I hope we peak and come down quickly. The strain of Omicron's surge already being felt by many. I think we're going to see, you know, half a million cases per day easy sometime over the next next uh, week, week to 10 days. As infections spread rapidly, health officials still believe those who are vaccinated and boosted should remain well protected from severe disease. But there are consequences affecting everyone. We still have tens of millions of unvaccinated people, and we're seeing hospitalizations rise. It means our hospitals in some places are going to get overrun. President Biden announcing last week the federal government is deploying hundreds of FEMA ambulances and EMS crews and mobilizing a thousand more military doctors, nurses and medics to help staff hospitals, overwhelmed by the surge. We have, as of this morning, 115 staff members out ill with COVID uh, who have tested positive. 
Federal emergency response teams are already working to ease the burden on health care workers in Colorado, Michigan, Minnesota, Vermont, New Hampshire, and New Mexico, as COVID-related staffing shortages cripple even more industries. New York City now running fewer subway trains with too many workers out sick, and airlines are at their busiest time of year, leaving even more passengers stranded just about everywhere. Domestically, a thousand more flights canceled today, more than 2,500 globally. The reason that our flight was canceled was because of uh, lack of flight attendants. So, yeah, on Delta. So I guess it's sad. It's just really sad. Four cruise ships with reported cases of COVID were turned away from their ports of call, an all-too-familiar reminder of when it all started. Sports are not immune either. The Military Bowl and the Fenway Bowl among the latest games canceled. As more holiday plans get scrapped this year, the struggle to get COVID tests just too real. At a busy site in Miami, the wait is more than two hours. The problems with testing particularly frustrating, of course, during this holiday week when a lot of people are trying to preserve perhaps the plants that they had. So the question now, what to do about those New Year's Eve parties? Well, Dr. Fauci was asked, and he said if you're talking about a larger party, 30, 40, even 50 people, you don't know everyone's vaccination status. And he is saying yet again that this still is not the year to do that. Jake? Alexander Field, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond traveling with President Biden in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Uh, So, Jeremy, President Biden was asked about shortening the quarantine time for positive tests earlier today before we got this new guidance from the CDC. What did he have to say? Uh, That's right, Jake. Just hours before the CDC made this announcement, President Biden was asked about this, and he said uh, that he would follow the advice of his medical experts when, uh, indeed, they would recommend a change to that isolation period. But it really is remarkable how quickly things have shifted at the White House and within the the federal government's federal uh, health response here on this isolation period. The president was also asked about this on Friday, and he said that that was not the recommendation of his public health experts at that time. That was just a day after after uh, the CDC had shortened that guidance for healthcare workers from 10 days to seven days. Now they're talking about five days of isolation for all Americans. And of course, we have to note that even though the CDC is clearly citing medical evidence about the spread of the coronavirus, companies across the country, including those airlines that we were just hearing about, uh, have been pressuring the federal government uh, to shorten that isolation period, citing the cost on economic economic activity as this Omicron surge uh, takes over the country. And Jeremy, President uh, Biden earlier today joined a call uh, between his COVID task force and the nation's governors. He he was able to speak uh, to all of them, including uh, Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas, who is one of more than a dozen Republican governors currently suing the Biden administration over vaccine mandates. Were they able to find uh, some common ground? Uh, They certainly were, Jake. Listen, this was not a combative call by all accounts, including the portion of the call uh, that was not on camera uh, and accessible to the media. Uh, This was really a call for the federal government and the state governments to get on the same page about this Omicron variant. Uh, We heard Governor Asa Hutchinson, the chair of the National Governors Association, praising the coordination that he's had uh, with the federal government. He also praised President Biden for remarks he made last week, which Hutchinson said were aimed at depoliticizing the response to the pandemic, an apparent reference to 
President Biden uh, touting the Trump administration's efforts to get the vaccine. But they were also in agreement on one thing, and that is that there is not enough testing in this country yet. And President Biden made very clear that those images of long lines over the weekend showed to him, at least, uh, that clearly they have uh, they have a lot more work to do. The president saying several times, clearly, we have not done enough on testing. That was also something that Dr. Anthony Fauci acknowledged earlier today. And so while they do have that plan to send those 500 million tests to Americans who request them beginning next month, there is a clear acknowledgement of what is an obvious failure uh, to meet that testing demand right now around the holiday season and with Omicron cases surging around the country. But also today, President Biden authorizing the use of the Stafford Act to use uh, emergency funds uh, so that HHS can stand up more testing sites in partnership with state and local governments across the country. Yeah, I mean, it has been a a, a huge failure and and not just... uh not just one that we're experiencing, it's very visible. We see all this video of these incredibly long testing lines throughout the country. In uh, Miami, Leila Santiago interviewed somebody who had been waiting in line for, for three hours for a test. How worried is the White House about this? Well, clearly they're worried enough that the president of the United States has now acknowledged uh, not just once, but repeatedly over the last week, uh, what is an apparent failure on the testing front, saying several times uh, that clearly his administration has not been able to meet that demand uh, and that uh, he, he wishes that he had done more. He said last week, for example, that he wishes that he had ordered those 500 million tests previously. Now, the White House has said that the manufacturing capacity simply wasn't there. But what we also heard President Biden do today was try and thread the needle between acknowledging that failure and also making clear how much progress has been made over the last year, citing the fact that, for example, nine at-home COVID tests have been approved. There were none when President Biden came into office uh, uh, nearly a year ago. So uh, that was kind of what you heard from the president, acknowledging on the one hand that uh, they have come up short on the testing front, but also that there has been a lot of progress uh, in his time in office. Jake? Jeremy Diamond traveling with President Biden uh, in Rehoboth Rehoboth Beach, uh, Delaware. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Today, thousands of holiday travelers are scrambling to rebook flights after major U.S. airlines have cancellations across the board. Let's go straight to CNN's national correspondent, Nadia Romero, live outside Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. And Nadia, uh, you tell us that flights are getting canceled because staff and crew are out with COVID. What are passengers saying about this? Yeah, Jake, well, we spoke with plenty of passengers over the last couple of days throughout the holiday week, and and they tell me that they were frantically checking their phones. Some of them couldn't sleep the night before their flight, just hoping that they wouldn't get an alert from their airline that their flight had been canceled or delayed. But at last check, 1,200 flights have been canceled today alone. You add that to the 1,500 from yesterday. I mean, the numbers just get worse and worse for passengers, many of them who haven't seen their families since uh, December of 2019. So two years ago, pre-pandemic, and so they wanted to take those flights despite all of the inconveniences and the travel delays that they knew they were going to expect on a normal holiday year. Now you add in the Omicron variant. Uh, We spoke with travelers who were going a little bit further. One woman was leaving Atlanta, headed to Hawaii. We spoke with another man who came to Atlanta from Taiwan. Listen to how they tried to navigate the Omicron variant and holiday travel over the past couple of days. This year compared to last year in 2020? So last year was a lot easier. Uh, I came here last year for Christmas as well, and it was a lot smoother than it is now. Plus, with everything going on, uh, I'm not sure how traveling is going to be affected. So I want to make sure that while we can travel, take, you know, get it out, get it out the way. 
Yeah, so he was traveling from Taiwan to Atlanta. Now he's headed to Tampa. His flight was canceled, but fortunately for him, he was able to get on a flight two hours earlier, so it didn't disrupt his travel plans altogether. Uh, Jake, this has just been a domino effect. Uh, once you figure out that your flight is on, as soon as you get inside, you're seeing some of the longest lines we've seen since maybe the Thanksgiving holiday, especially at TSA General Boarding, uh, taking people a long time to get through the other side to the security checkpoints. Jake. And Nadia, tell us about these four uh, ocean cruise ships being turned away because of COVID concern. Tell us more about that. What's happening with those travelers? Yeah, Jake, this reminds us as of the very beginning of COVID, where we had those cruise ships that were docked and, and we had all of those troubles. Those four cruise ships were turned away from their ports of call. Uh, so one was going to a stop in Mexico. The others were going to the Caribbean. Uh, they had different levels of COVID-19 outbreaks on board. And so they were turned away. They had to go back to their original port of entry. And Jake, those cruise lines will tell you, they'll, they'll proudly say that we tested everyone. You have to have a negative test. You have to be fully vaccinated. If you're a traveler, which just goes to show uh, how hard it is to limit the spread of this Omicron variant. Jake? All right, Nadia Romero uh, in Atlanta, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, we break down your questions about this new CDC guidance, shortening the time needed to isolate after testing positive with COVID, going from 10 days to five. Plus, how the power of superheroes is able to lure viewers back into movie theaters. This year's blockbuster is back, turning Spidey Sense into real Cash. Don't go anywhere. In our health lead, let's dig in further on our breaking news. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention now recommending isolation for those who test positive for COVID for only five days, down from 10. Joining us now to discuss, Dr. Megan Rainey. She's a professor of emergency medicine and an associate dean of public health at Brown University. Uh, first, Dr. Rainey, what, what is your reaction to this brand new CDC guidance cutting isolation time by half? So this is part good news, part a little bit of stretch of the science. The good news is, is that for folks who are vaccinated, there is increasing evidence that if we are asymptomatic, we are not infectious after five days. And we should be allowed to be back in society, back at work, back at school, and back at play. The trouble is for the unvaccinated, the data is not as clear. And so they're kind of extrapolating from what we've seen increasingly around the vaccinated to the unvaccinated as well. They do make the caveat that after that five days, if you're out in public, you should still be wearing a mask, but you and I both know how often the unvaccinated are wearing masks out in public right now. So I'm a little nervous about that part of the recommendation. That said, overall, I'm glad to see the CDC following the science. As we learn more about the virus, we should be changing our recommendations. I just wish this were done in a way that rewarded the vaccinated and didn't put the rest of us at risk. Why do this now as cases are surging and all the health experts think this is going to get even worse over the next uh, four to six weeks? I suspect that it is at least partly because of pressure from employers. Listen, I spent the day in the emergency department today. Um, we have six physicians currently among my group, our residents and attendings, who are out sick with COVID. None of them are severely ill because we've all, of course, been vaccinated and most of us have been boosted. 
having them out for 10 days versus five days, it's a really big difference for my healthcare system. And that's true not just for healthcare systems, but for airlines, as you were just talking about, for restaurants, for schools. So there's a lot of pressure as there are more cases to try to cut down on that isolation period if we can. And again, we can do it safely, particularly for the vaccinated. And what might this mean for schools? We've been seeing some universities moving back to virtual learning. Um, That has some parents worried that, you know, grade schools, high schools uh, might also uh, go back to that, even though we have the Secretary of Education and Dr. Fauci and others saying there is no need to go back to virtual learning. Um, What do you think this step might, well, that might this step play a role in keeping the schools open? I hope it will encourage us to keep schools open. Listen, I've been a vocal advocate since last summer, since long before we even got vaccines, about the importance of in-person learning. Masks are, of course, a critical component of that. So are vaccines. This new policy will allow teachers to stay in the classroom, will allow kids to get back to in-person learning more quickly, hopefully will encourage both grade schools and high schools, but also colleges and universities to stay in person. You know, on the, on the matter of following the, the science, I want to ask your opinion about um, masking because it seems pretty clear that the N95 masks are much better and more serious than some of the cloth masks. Um, I mean, why do you think the CDC should be telling people time to, time to switch to N95 serious or, you know, there's no shortage of them now. Everybody can get them. Uh, that the the, because the cloth masks are are not as effective i mean they're more effective than nothing but they're not as effective as as these actual professional masks yeah that's right i would not be caught in the emergency department with just a cloth mask i wear an n95 and then wear another mask on top of it to help keep it clean since i sometimes still do reuse them for an entire day um it, it COVID is an airborne virus and especially this new omicron variant spreads so easily that you really do need an N95, a KN95, or a KF94 to fully prevent its transmission. This would be a great time for the CDC to update its recommendations to make very clear that there is a gradation of masks and that those home-sewn cloth masks do not cut it against Omicron. But I will remind you again that the vaccines, of course, are our very best protection. Absolutely, of course. And we see cases in South Africa trending down. That's where Omicron, uh, we first learned of it. Uh, based on that, what is your prediction for how long this surge might go on in the U.S.? So I hesitate to extrapolate directly from South Africa to the United States for a couple of reasons. The first is it's summer in South Africa. It's winter here in the U.S. We have very different patterns of living and Uh, socializing, right? That would be like comparing July in the U.S. to July in South Africa. Not a fair comparison. The second thing is that our population makeup is different and our country is different. You know, we saw with Delta variant that took India by storm over a couple of months, but it's been about six to nine months that it's been slowly making its way through the United States. I worry that the same could be true with Omicron. Now, In a best case scenario, we will follow the same pattern of a quick surge up and then a quick drop down in cases. But even in that best case scenario, Jake, we are in for a heck of a January. Uh, I've gotten so many texts from friends today who've caught COVID over the last few days, um, over the holiday weekend. Uh, Again, I have multiple colleagues who are out. Um, We are in for a really tough month ahead, even if we do follow the same pattern as South Africa. 
There are so many uh, signs of people wanting to get back to normal. Uh, people flocked to movie theaters this weekend in a record box office opening uh, for the new Spider-Man. Some airports saw more travelers before Christmas than pre-pandemic levels. Um, obviously, to a degree, people uh, who are vaccinated uh, and boosted are just, you know, they're, they're factoring in the risks and they want to go back to their lives. How are you gauging how to live your life? Do you go to the movies? Do you eat out at restaurants? Do you travel? How do you do it? So at this moment, I cannot afford to get sick. My colleagues cannot afford for me to get sick. So I am not going to the movies or out to restaurants. I am, however, spending time with small groups of people. We all do a rapid test right beforehand. We're all vaccinated. Those of us that are eligible are boosted. I don't think that those of us who are vaccinated should go back to the life that we were living in 2020. Because even as contagious as Omicron is, if you are vaccinated, particularly if you're boosted, and you're unlucky enough to catch it, you're gonna be okay. This is the thing that I'm telling people. Make sure that you have rapid tests, if at all possible. Make sure that you have ibuprofen and Tylenol, chicken soup or Gatorade, and have a pulse ox, just in case you do get sick, to help soothe your own anxiety and nerves to remind you that you're gonna be okay. But for most of us who are vaccinated, Omicron in particular is going to be more like a cold. Just take a little bit and be a little careful so you don't overwhelm the system right now. Dr. Rani, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. Coming up next, follow the money. How the January 6th committee is trying to track down some key players behind the insurrection. Stay with us. National lead, almost 5 million people have signed a petition calling for leniency in the case of a truck driver who received a 110-year prison sentence for a deadly Colorado highway crash. The driver killed four people in 2019 after he says the brakes on his semi-truck failed, causing a devastating 28-car pileup. Prosecutors in Colorado are requesting his sentence be reduced. The original judge in the case said his hands had been tied due to Colorado's mandatory minimum sentencing laws. CNN's Lucy Kafanov joins us now live from Denver with more on this story. And Lucy, a hearing in this case just wrapped up a little while ago. Tell us what happened. That's right, Jake. The judge today scheduled a resentencing hearing for January 13th. They discussed how this was an unusual case because it's the prosecution which initiated this request for a lower sentence rather than the defense. Now, the district attorney, Alexis King, has asked the court to reconsider that lengthy 110-year prison sentence for Rogel Aguilera Maderos, potentially uh, reducing it down to 20 or 30 years. She said this was based on the facts in the case and conversations with the victims and their families. She also told reporters today, quote, this is an exceptional case uh, and requires an exceptional process. Now, when this court reconvenes next month, there will be an in-person hearing, but the judge said he does not want the defendant to testify. Uh, More broadly at issue in this case are the Colorado mandatory minimum sentencing laws that require sentences for each count to be served consecutively rather than concurrently. Uh, Madero's was convicted on 27 charges, including several counts of vehicular homicide as well as vehicular assault, which is how the now 26-year-old found himself facing more than a century behind bars. His attorney telling CNN earlier today that the state's sentencing laws need reform. Take a look. The law doesn't really distinguish between people like Mr. Medeiros, who 
is not a danger to society and other people that are sentenced to life that are a danger to society. And I think the law needs to make those kind of exceptions and understand that there is a difference between Mr. Medeiros and those other kinds of people. You know, he was 23 years old at the time of the crash. Authorities say he was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. He says his brakes failed, but prosecutors argued he should have used the runaway ramp, the runway ramp, uh, runaway ramp, pardon me, and the new sentence will be determined next month, Jake. And what's the, the position of the governor's office on this petition to grant clemency? Well, this case sparked a lot of national attention. And as you mentioned, nearly five million signatures in that petition asking uh, the Colorado governor to reduce his sentence or to grant clemency. Uh, We heard Kim Kardashian speaking out, asking the governor to also uh, grant uh, clemency. The governor's office, meanwhile, telling CNN that it is reviewing the request. Legal experts, however, don't expect him to get ahead of the judicial system. Uh, And even some of the victim's families are calling for him to stay out of it. All right, Lucy Kavanaugh, thanks so much. The committee investigating the Capitol insurrection is trying a new strategy to get answers about the money behind January 6th. That's next. We are following the money in our politics lead today. New records show that the House committee investigating the Capitol riot is now demanding bank records in an effort to figure out exactly how Two rallies held on January 6th leading up to the insurrection were funded. CNN law enforcement correspondent Whitney Wild joins us now live. Whitney, walk us through exactly what the House Select Committee is demanding and how we learned about it. Well, Jake, this was all revealed in a challenge to the committee's subpoena for those banking records of a man named Taylor Budowich. He is a former senior advisor for the Trump 2020 campaign. He is now former President Donald Trump's spokesman. Now, this challenge suggests that this committee is looking at funding, as you'd mentioned, for the January 6th rally, sending the subpoena directly to J.P. JP Morgan Chase, who told Budowich if he didn't file a motion to stop the records release, they would hand over this information. Budowich did file a motion, arguing that he has already given the committee those records and that the risks here are in releasing private financial information that is not relevant to this investigation, not material to anything that the House Select Committee has jurisdiction over. Now, a previously released subpoena for Budowich says he reportedly solicited a 501c4 organization to conduct a social media and radio advertising campaign encouraging attendance at the January 6th Ellipse rally and advancing unsupported claims about the result of the election. The committee claims Budowich directed around $200,000 from a source or source to that 501c4 organization that was not disclosed to the organization to pay for the advertising campaign. So clearly there are a lot of questions about these finances. Again, Jake, he argues, we already gave you this information. This is over. Uh, We'll see what happens now that it has been formally filed with the court. So we'll see what a judge says. So, Wendy, what happens next and, and how quickly will it happen? Well, we don't have any information on timing, and that's because the the case is only just assigned to a judge today. So we'll follow this closely. But at, at this point, it's up in the air. And Jake, he's, he's making a lot of arguments we've already seen, which are that this committee is politically lopsided and that it has no real legislative purpose. But these are arguments that two courts now have said are basically without merit. I mean, these are these are the very same arguments that the Trump team has made to try to block uh, the archives requests. And so far, judges are just not buying it. So we'll see what happens here. All right, Winnie Wild, thanks so much. Let's discuss this. Uh, let me bring in Stuart Stevens and Bakari Sellers. Bakari, let me start with you because uh, among the many hats you wear, one of them is, is a lawyer. Uh, what's the point of figuring out who paid for 
the rallies, the rallies themselves uh, are not being investigated. It's what happened at the Capitol. Well, you, you can't look at one without the other. I mean, this is why you have things such as racketeering when you look at who's financing projects, what happens in the middle and the end result. And so by digging up and going to find out who financed the rallies, who who paid for the buses, who paid for the uh, robocalls, who paid for the radio ads, these individuals who actually paid for this rally, which led to an insurrection, they paid for this coup. And it's very important to know who they are. And we'll see because um, I've always said, and I think many people, Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike, they want accountability for those people who financed this coup or attempted coup. And they also want accountability for individuals who actually stormed the Capitol. So it's not just the number of people we've seen indicted for storming. It's also those individuals who paid for it and those elected officials who aided and abetted. Stuart, what's your take? I mean, it is possible that the rallies themselves, again, not the attack on the Capitol, but the rallies themselves were funded uh, by the Trump campaign or Trump himself. Does that necessarily mean that the funding was there to create this coup, as Bakari describes it? Sure, I think it does. They were very clear about what they wanted to do. They wanted to stop the peaceful transference of power. I mean, this is what they wanted Pence to do. There's no secrets here. It's just a question of whether or not people are going to, are they going to be held accountable? I mean, what's difficult for some people to wrap their minds around is that every level of the Republican Party was involved in this. White House staff, congressmen, senators, their staffs, the Republican Governors Association was involved, the RNC, major donors. I mean, you, you know, you work for a congressman or a senator, they don't go out the door without being staffed up. This was not just a sort of impromptu event. It was long in the planning and people paid for it and they tried to overthrow the government of the United States. And Bakari, the committee's also asked to speak to two Republican members of Congress. Um, congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania declined the committee's request. Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, he has not yet responded. Bakari, do, do you think the committee would be willing to subpoena fellow members of Congress? Yes. I mean, I think they have to if they're going to ultimately get the answers. One thing this committee can't do. I mean, you've already <laughs> you've already walked this far. You can't turn back now. You can't shortchange the American public. So, yes, they have to drag these members in. And let's not forget what we're talking about here. People died at this at this attempted coup. People died in the storming of the Capitol. Law enforcement was assaulted. I mean, this wasn't just some peaceful uh, march on Washington. This was actually a violent attempted insurrection. And so when you look at the results of it, I think the individuals who financed this rally have just the same culpability as those individuals who stormed the Capitol and equally as culpable are the members of Congress who may even be held to a higher standard. I have a feeling we'll be seeing Jim Jordan and many others sitting in front of the committee and having to testify under oath. Scott, there are there are no signs either Congressman Jordan or Perry uh, is going to be willing to cooperate. So taking it one step further, do you think there would even be enough votes in the House to potentially refer fellow members of Congress to the Justice Department for criminal contempt of Congress? Um, I don't think Republicans are going to rise to this challenge at all. Um, this is a straight up uh, failure of Republicans to hold uh, basic law and order tenets that those of us that worked in the party, we always like to think of ourselves as a law and order party. So look, except for a few people here, Liz uh, is leading the charge. Republicans aren't going to help. This is why they were opposed to the creation of a one six committee. They knew what it would uncover. 
Congressman Benny Thompson, um, the Democrat who chairs the January 6th committee, told the Washington Post this uh, about the investigation into former President Trump, quote, I can assure you that if a criminal referral would be warranted, there would be no reluctance on the part of this committee to do that, unquote. Bacard, do you think it's too soon to be talking potentially about trying to get former President Trump charged? There are still financial records, White House records, testimony that the committee has not been able to get get hold of yet. Yeah, I mean, if you if you shoot at the king, you better not miss, right? That's the that's the saying that is oftentimes uh, utilized, especially in the court of law, when individuals are seeking indictments. They are doing it the right way. They are going through following the money. They are following the paper. They are doing it the right way. Congressman Thompson is doing what he's supposed to do as leader of this committee. It's a bipartisan committee, and they're going to make sure that when they send a referral over that it's going to be an actual case that you can win. It's not just one that exceeds the probable cause threshold. They would hope that they can prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. And the best part about this process, and let's not forget, is that the White House is doing what it's supposed to do and what White Houses have done over, uh, over the pendency of time, which is stay out of the Department of Justice's business when it comes to these type of prosecutions, et cetera. And so I appreciate what Kamala and, and Joe Biden are doing by just allowing this committee and allowing the Department of Justice to do their work. And Stuart, the, the Washington Post also has some new reporting about how Trump loyalists in Congress are trying to purge Republicans that they feel are not loyal to Trump sufficiently. One of the candidates they're supporting is a gentleman named Joe Kent. He's challenging Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler of Washington State because uh, Herrera Butler voted to impeach uh, Donald Trump over January 6th. Kent said if he's elected, he won't fight with Democrats, uh, but instead, quote, a lot of it will be shaming Republicans. I need to be going after the people in the Republican Party who want to go back to go along to get along. It's put up or shut up, unquote. We should note uh, Ken is out there pushing the lie that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election. There, of course, wasn't. He falsely claims government agents were involved in the Capitol riot and on and on and on. Stuart, is this the future of the Republican Party? Yes, absolutely. It's the future of the Republican Party. Um, look, we, we have to stop thinking what's happening here in the United States has never happened before elsewhere. There's a pretty predictable pattern here. I mean, a lot of studies have been done on this, a lot of great books written, how modern democracies fail. And that's what's happening here. It's a test of whether or not our democracy is going to fail. And one of the inevitable steps are purges, where people compete to be more pure. And that's, that's what's happening here. Um, and it's not going to stop. Except for a few people, there's no anti-Trump movement in the Republican Party. This is what the Republican Party wants to be, which, as sad as it is to admit, is largely an autocratic movement. And Bakari, that's a Republican staffer, former Republican consultant saying that. I mean, this, but it doesn't seem as though uh, the, the war that so many of these Republicans are waging against facts and reality and democracy is hurting their chances at all when it comes to winning the House and maybe the Senate back in 2022. Does that say something about the weakness of the Democrats? I think it says something about our failure to communicate the policy, policies and successes that Democrats have actually had. But I think what we're talking about is the fact that whatever margin, I, I believe that it's very possible that um, Republicans, due to gerrymandering and the, the momentum of the country, are going to take back the House. It's a lot different in the Senate, but take back the House. That margin won't be 
um, that margin won't be as wide as it could be because you'll be having a lot of poor candidates, uh, individuals who are challenging in primaries, individuals who are trying to, as we talked about a minute ago, pass that purity test. I mean, our former colleague Andre Bauer is talking about running um, against Nancy Mace, right, just because of her vote. Um, or earlier on and her pushing back on Donald Trump. And so you have these issues popping up all across the country, which is going to give Democrats some chance to win seats we otherwise wouldn't. All right, Bakari Sellers, Stuart Stevens, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Spinning a web of box office gold, the new Spider-Man movie doing something that has not been done since 2019. What is it? Stay with us. our pop culture lead, usually a rapidly spreading pandemic and sitting in enclosed spaces with strangers for a couple hours don't go well together. But Marvel's Spider-Man No Way Home swung in and absolutely smashed the pandemic box office record, raking in more than a billion dollars worldwide. That's the first time a film has done that since 2019 before the pandemic. Let's bring in Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. And and Sonny, Spider-Man's surge passed other highly anticipated films at the box office this year, Dune, uh, the newest James Bond movie. Why do you think Spider-Man was able to do this where those other films weren't? Well, Spider-Man had a big advantage being an MCU movie that stars not only, you know, is not only continuing that whole Marvel Cinematic Universe storyline, but has the most beloved character, I think, in comic books, more or less, in Spider-Man. Uh, but it also had the advantage of, look, just frankly, being only in theaters, right? We, you, you mentioned Dune. Dune, big movie, did well, did okay, made about $400 million at the, the global box office. But it was hampered a bit because it was in uh, theaters and on HBO Max simultaneously in the U.S. and in some other territories, right? No Time to Die has done very well at the box office. I mean, it's gross $775 million, something like that. Uh, but it is, it's a little bit limited here in the, in the United States because older audiences are still a little hesitant to return uh, to theaters and No Time to Die is a James Bond movie. James Bond has always been a little bit uh, more, it's skewed a little older, right? So it, 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 had, some, it had some drawbacks there. Uh, Spider-Man No Way Home is a, is a huge crowd-pleasing movie that very importantly people wanted to see in theaters to avoid getting spoiled. That, that, is like <laughs> a, that is a very key thing that we need to keep in mind here. And one of the reasons why it did such huge numbers on the opening weekend. I don't think anybody was expecting you know, a $250 million style opening for this movie. Uh, and it is... Uh, it's 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 a testament to the character. It's a testament to Marvel. It's a testament to um, the fact that I think people are starting to get a little more comfortable with going to the movie theaters, which is, you know, not great timing, given uh, everything going on with Omicron. But it is a it's it's a it's a it's a big hit, big win for Sony uh, and and Marvel alike. And there there is this shift. You, you talk about this, about. Um, one of the issues with Dune is that it, you could see it at home and streaming or in the theater. Does what happened with Spider-Man, this huge box office smash, solidify not only there will always be some appetite for movie theaters, but perhaps send a signal to Hollywood you really should not do the, the release at, in theaters and at home at the same time. You should try to do the, the theater release to get these numbers. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a really difficult balancing act for studios, and I don't I don't uh, you know I don't want to second guess any of them. They have a ton of different things they're thinking about, but 
if you look at if you look at the movies that have done the best in the pandemic, the ones that have done the best are the ones that are available exclusively in theaters. So if you look at Spider-Man No Way Home, huge hit, exclusively in theaters. Uh, Venom, Let There Be Carnage was a surprise hit. I don't think anybody was expecting that to have the biggest opening weekend of any movie uh, before, you know, Spider-Man No Way Home. But it did huge numbers because people were excited to see it and they could only see it in theaters. Uh, no time that I did very well. I mean, it, you know, it did, it did, it did very solid. It held well. Uh, and it, it did that because it was available only in theaters. And again, if you, you can even extend that back a little bit, look at a movie like free guy. I don't think anybody, I think people were kind of skeptical, like, Oh, they're going to keep free guy just in theaters. But by keeping it in theaters, they, they extended the life of that movie and they, uh, did a pretty good job of of getting it into the top ten uh, on the year. I was I was a little bit surprised by how that how well that one held. Uh, but it's a fun movie. People wanted to go see it in theaters. Uh, it, what's what's especially interesting here is that all of these movies are basically films that appeal to uh, young men. If you're looking at the four <laughs> quadrants, right? It's younger male audiences. Those are those are the movies that are still doing really really well. Movies like West Side Story, which is available only in theaters, uh, has have not done as well. Movies like The Last Duel, even House of Gucci, which has done done a little bit better. But those are movies that are skewed towards a little older audiences. Uh, in some cases, more more female centric audiences, and it, it they they have not done as well. The 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 young male audience is the one that has said we are we're done with Delta, we're done with Omicron, we're done with <laughs> COVID, we're going back to the movie theaters. Yeah. Sunny Bunch, thanks so much. Good to see you as always. Turning to our sports lead, a growing wave of postponements and cancellations as the virus sweeps through the country right now. Again, the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, all forced to remake their schedules due to the Omicron surge. And in college football, two more bowl games have been canceled, while two others are now searching for new teams after the University of Miami and Boise State University withdrew from their bowl games. Joining us now, CNN Sports Analyst Christine Brennan. Christine, these latest announcements bring the total number of college bowl games impacted in just the past week to six. How do you see this playing out as we approach the college football playoff games later this week? Jake, well, clearly Omicron's not done with us and not done with sports. And uh, the college football the big, the big uh, evening, of course, is New Year's Eve with the two uh, semifinals. And if one team is not able to play, it's just going to be a forfeit, which is quite a, a shock. You know, all this buildup, September, October, November, and then it's a forfeit. My strong guess is that there will not be a forfeit. Uh, at this point, these schools uh, are the ones in charge of their numbers. And it would take quite a president of a university or an athletic director to uh, announce the numbers. I'm not saying they're cheating. But to be so forthright to knock themselves out of the game that they have been pointing towards for this entire season. Uh, and, and Nick Saban, the Alabama coach, has said his team's fine. And my guess is all four of the teams will be OK. But there's no doubt that COVID would be a part of each team potentially or coaching staff. Uh, whether or not they'll report it uh, or kind of try to ignore it, that's a, obviously an open question. And Christine, the uh, National Hockey League just announced that they're postponing three more games, bringing the total number of post games, postponed games to 70. But the NHL also said they're still planning to resume its regular season tomorrow. The NBA and NFL have similarly seen a huge uptick in cases. Do you think that these leagues are taking the threat seriously enough? I think they're taking it uh, as seriously as they, they can financially. Jake, I think they do not want to shut down. And so they're bringing up minor leaguers in the NBA. 
the NHL, of course, was going to have the Christmas break. Well, now it looks like it could even be a New Year's break. But they're going to keep trying, and they will have now the Olympic, the February three weeks in the Olympics that they would have had uh, at the Olympic tournament. Now they're not going to be at the Olympics, so they'll have those three weeks to kind of pack in any uh, postponed games. So, no, they want to keep playing, um, and they're willing to put on an inferior product on the field. And, and so far, fans are willing to accept that. Christine Brennan, good to see you as always. Thank you so much. Coming up next, more on our breaking news. The CDC shortening the isolation period for some people after they test positive for COVID. Dr. Anthony Fauci will be live on CNN to answer your questions about the changes. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 